I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by The Mosaic Company. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Things that matter are measured in generations, like traditions, families, and farms. For a growing operation, the health of the soil should last. Introducing Sistera by The Mosaic Company. It's a first-of-its-kind phosphate fertilizer made with recycled organic matter to improve soil health and ensure its sustainability for generations to come. Visit SisteraFertilizer.com to learn how your land can provide for tomorrow's generations and leave a legacy that matters. Pairing no-till know-how with farm shop savvy, Attica, Ohio grower Jerry Idle applies his inquisitive mind to the family farm that dates back to 1833. After seeing improved moisture retention and residue cover as a result of switching from moldboard plowing to chisel plows, Idle made the move to no-till more than 30 years ago. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with Idle about the equipment and technology that made it possible to make the switch, including an airway aerator, Kinsey planters, and RTK guidance, as well as how he's been managing nutrient runoff in the Lake Erie Basin, why he likes to strip-till corn, learning to plant green and roll down covers, and much more. So, Jerry, did you grow up in this area? Yep, been here all my life. Northwest Ohio, Attica, right? Correct. Grow up on a farm? Yep, born on the, what we call the home farm. that uh, They came here in 1833, and I lived within two miles of that all my life. Wow, you did better than I did. I grew up on a farm that had been in the family since 1853, and I thought that was old. So how long have you been farming on your own? Oh, I started in 1960 on my own uh, for an FFA project, and uh, we farmed that same rented farm up till this year, and we gave it up. Uh So how many acres are you farming now? Oh, about pretty close to 900. So I looked up an article we'd done on you back in 2009 in No-Till Farmer, and you had a four-year rotation then of I think soybeans, wheat, soybeans, and then corn. Yeah. Did you move away from that? We went away from that. Um, we did some cover crops in there, tried for a while. We ran out of manpower. But the last two years, why we've put some cover back in, and we put the wheat back in the rotation just for the good of the ground. And, and it lightens up the load a little bit. Sure. I suppose if you got wheat coming off in July or so, it gives you a head start on a cover crop, right? Yeah, that was the game plan. And uh-huh. In our area, wheat, we messed up all the rest of the holidays, so we might as well take care <laughs> of the 4th of July. There you go. So, <laughs> so how long have you been no-tilling? Oh, probably close to 30 years. Well, we were no-tilling. I mean, we got away from the plows 30-some years ago, and then we chisel-plowed. And then uh, 25 years ago, you know, it was no-till and maybe an airway, and that got us 
over into the no-till, and lately it's just been strip-till and no-tilling. So you strip-till your corn, no-till your beans? Yeah. Okay. And, and last year we got caught here with a little pocket here, and all our farms are within two or three miles, and it, we didn't get anything planted till the first week of June this year. We actually just no-tilled in some corn. Came out pretty lucky. Yeah, so was... 2019 a problem year for you too? I mean, that area had a lot of rain, a lot of floods, didn't it? Yeah, in, in 19 we uh, we only got 90 acres of corn out, and that was in the first week of June. And the day after we got it out, we got another two and a half inches of rain. So, mm -hmm. so we had a lot of prevent plant. Right. Well, I was talking some time ago to one of your friends, Bob Featheringill, and he was telling me in 19 he got some beans that he planted practically the first of July and they yielded really well for him. Yeah, for as late as we got them out, they, they didn't do too bad yeah. in our area. Yeah. So what were some of the challenges you had early on with no-till? I guess just trying to get it right. Uh, we were running a Kinsey planter and that worked well. And then I guess just getting the guts to do it. <laughs> and, you know, we were no-till and beans, and, and uh, we tried it on the corn, and like I say, just making up our mind to go for it. Yeah. So, so your Kinsey planter, how many rows? Six rows? Eight rows? We started out originally with a six, and then in 2004, we got a 12-row 3,600, and we've been running that ever since, and now we run a... Uh, 24-row Kenzie for beans mm -hmm. and 15-inch rows. So so your corn, you're, you've got a 12-row, what, 30-inch rows? Yeah, 12-row 30. Okay. When do you ideally like to plant no-till beans and strip-till your corn? What dates? Usually for us, if, if we could get in around the 15th of May in our area, that seems to be the best time for the corn. We can go a little earlier on the beans and by now having the second planter what and we get the manpower we can run them both at the same time so sure but normally the middle of middle of the may is is good for us why is that better for you than like late april or may one we have some lower areas uh Eel glacier was good to us through here we've some of our farms are on a, the glacial moraine here in our township, but we have some low areas and we have to watch for frost. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but I mean, we've planted in April already and came out good. Right. But it seems our weather patterns and stuff, if we can get in around that second week of May and get done, it's a good time. So you would normally, if you had an ideal year, you'd probably plant soybeans first? Uh, yeah. They seem to be a more forgiving crop than corn. Yeah, you know, and we watch. I mean, you get that soil temperature up to 50 degrees. I don't want that crop laying in the ground for two weeks. Right. You know, get it up, get it started, keep it healthy. How do you uh, how do you decide on a fertility program? You uh, soil test, tissue test? Yeah, we we do both soil test, tissue test. We're up here, and our water goes into Lake Erie. 
Sure. And one of the main drainage ditches here goes into Lake Erie. So they watch us. They, you'll see the state down here taking water samples. And so, and then also we have to soil test uh, like every three years. And we're, we're in at our four program, our local co-op. Uh, and then they will come out and randomly pick people and audit them you know, mm-hmm. and, and make sure you're following the, the recommendations. Sure. So Lake Erie, is the big concern nitrogen or phosphorus? Phosphorus. And okay. they're starting to talk more on nitrogen, uh, but the phosphorus is the big issue. That algae that they have up there, we actually have it in the ditch right here on our farm. Um, Hmm. And it's, I think because the water doesn't move very fast in that area, but we've had that here for four or five years now. It was the state found it back here. Hmm. So that blue green algae. Will you tissue test ahead of side dressing and uh, determine what you're putting on based on the tissue test or not? Yeah. We normally have the, co-op we work pretty tight with them in a program they will pull the samples Uh, we've been trying to you know cut back on nitrogen all we can with a strip till and and being able to put our fertilizer in the strip Mm -hmm. you know we've we've cut that a little bit we can variable rate we have a twin bend horseman strip tiller so okay what made you decide to give strip to a try with corn? Well, I think it was probably being out at the conference, mm-hmm. talking to some guys, and then uh, here in the neighborhood, well, Bob Feathengale, he wanted to try it, and so actually, I think we helped him set up his first strip tiller, made some brackets for him, and, mm-hmm. and uh, on a Rawson Zone builder. And we got one, and we used that for a number of years. Moved up to an horseman and put it behind an airway. Mm-hmm. Just trying not to disturb this ground any more than we have to. So tell me about your experience with the airway, and are you still using it today or not? Uh, yeah. We don't use it as much as we used to. Our ground, and some of ours right here where we're at, I don't think requires it. Sure. So this past spring, we didn't even use it. I mean, it's it actually it was wet where the seed was going to go. Mm-hmm. In that area, the, the ground was nice, and below that, it was just it was kind of mush. So we ended up, like I say, we took the planter out and said, okay, you know, it's time to be getting this corn in the ground, and and we planted it. Yeah, no. Now, we've been on RTK since 2000, and we did that in 2005. So on our corn, we, we set our lines back in 2006, and we still use that same line. So wow. we don't alternate. You know, we have a controlled traffic. In our ground, it, it seems to work. So you will go on the same tracks every year? Yes, so tell me why you got into using the airway and what it did for you. We found out it would just break up that hard pan a little bit. I mean, if we had any tracks from the combine when we went through, mm-hmm. it would shatter that just a little bit. I felt it left the, uh, you know, the water in the winter. We got some freezing and thawing, and I think that helped us 
get to the no-till quicker, you know. So what are you doing in corn for weed control? Running, the, we do a burn down in the spring with normally 2,4-D and, uh, and a residual that will come back and do a post application. It's been working well. And what we found out too, where, where you got cover on, it's really helping out on the weeds. So, mm-hmm. um, what are you using kind of the same program of soybeans or doing something different? Yeah, soybeans are the same way. We'll 2,4-D, which kind of scout the fields. If we need to put a glyphosate on there, we will. Mm-hmm. If we don't, we'll stay away from it. But each field's different. Yeah, right. Yeah. So using any insecticides or fungicides? Yeah, we'll, we do a little insecticide, uh, usually with the planter, put some on, and then uh, we'll come back with a fungicide uh, and the soybeans. We usually do two applications of that mm-hmm. on the corn while we have that all done aerial. When you're at the National No-Tillage Conference, I know you got interested in an Apache self-propelled sprayer, and then you bought one. So you got 900 acres. How many uh, acres will you put on that sprayer in a year's time? Uh, 3,000. Yeah. Probably at least. That's what happens. You guys buy those self-propelled sprayers, and you start making more trips. (laughs) Yeah, as long as the air conditioner works, and we have that on (laughs) RTK Autopilot. Right, right. You know. But, you know, we'll go through the beans. I mean, we we follow your feed on the beans and fungicide. And so if you do a pre and a post, and sometimes on the post, you know, we'll maybe tweak it up with some micros or something. And When we did this story on you in 2009, you, you talked in there about the soils you got up there. And it, it, you mentioned you had 168-acre field in which you had seven different soil types in it. Can you talk about that a little? <laughs> oh, yeah, there's. I could say the glacier was good to us. Um, most of our stuff is a tyro or a linoleum or conduit. We we have uh, we're right on the edge of the old lake bed here, and there's what they call a celeryville mm-hmm. that they grow a lot of vegetables, and we're we're right out on the edge of that, so we get a lot of different soils. Uh, our muck pockets, when you get into them, they're true muck and, and they're small, but it makes life interesting. You know, it just acts different. I mean, you can plant corn in there and put the seed in four inches deep and it doesn't bother. Yeah. You, you can't control it, you know. Yeah. And the subdivision where we live, there's a 18 acre field down at the end and it's all muck soils and the guy's no-tilling corn and soybeans in there and bringing his sprayer 20 miles into the suburban area to do it. But he's making no-till work in muck soils. For us, it works better. I mean, in the old days when we used to run a field cultivator and a packer, I mean, you'd hit those pockets. You'd have to carry the packer and just bury it. We'll come right back to Frank and Jerry Idle, but I'd like to take another moment to thank our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Things that matter are measured in generations, like traditions, families, and farms. For a growing operation, the health of the soil should last. Introducing Sistera by The Mosaic Company. 
It's a first-of-its-kind phosphate fertilizer made with recycled organic matter to improve soil health and ensure its sustainability for generations to come. Visit SisteraFertilizer.com to learn how your land can provide for tomorrow's generations and leave a legacy that matters. We'll get back to the conversation in a moment, but first here is Frank with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Thanks, Julia. Since we're talking with Jerry Idle today and he's been doing some strip-till, I'm going to give you a couple facts today on strip-till. Back in 1998, the National No-Tillage Conference, one of the speakers was Ray Roundhorse from uh, Easton, Minnesota. And he's been no-tilling and strip-tilling for a number of years. And he pointed out that when strip-tilling wet soils on his farm, he tries to move the row cleaners one and a half to two inches to the side of the row to work in drier soil. That's what he was doing in 1998. Let's get back to Frank and Jerry Idle as they talk about cover crops. Tell me about uh, cover crops. When did you get started using cover crops? Oh, first, we were into them probably 15 or 18 years ago, I guess. We started with cereal rye, and then our kind of our farming operation changed. um, And we just ran out of time, didn't have the manpower. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and we knew we had to get back to it. So the last few years, uh, you know, we've just, and we we got to do this. This year, we got behind and we, we called aerial applicator and uh, had them fly some some rye on in and on our corn. Mm-hmm. You know, the last couple of years, a year, well, in nineteen, with all that ground that bring any plant, we started putting rye on that. We couldn't get uh, rye that ran out, so we used some wheat, mm-hmm. which worked okay but we found out you know don't leave it bare you know just talking to the guys at the conference and and the different varieties we want to start adding some more to the mix sure but so uh, getting going at so when you had the uh, aerial applicator fly on and rye this fall was it before or after corn harvest actually we did like 180 acres right before we were going to harvest it Mm-hmm. And then we turned around, and, you know, we looked at it and said, you know, we're we're out of time. We figured we'd get it on, and then when we harvested it, put the fodder down on it, we'd be okay. Then we got 4.2 inches of rain that week. <laughs> so it was, most of it was growing when we were, finally could get in and harvest. It, yeah. it looked pretty good. So right. it was a leap of faith, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, a year ago, and your prevent plant, you have 900 acres. How many acres a year ago didn't get planted? Let's see, 90 acres of corn, and uh, I think we had 370 acres of beans, if I remember right. That's what you harvested, or or didn't yeah, get planted? Yeah, that's harvested. what we got okay. harvested. So, did yep. you go in and put a, put a cover crop on that early in July or so, or what? Yeah, it was end of July, first of August. We had some wheat seed left, and uh, we put that on. And actually, we took anything that we had around here, <laughs> right. and put it in the drill, and planted it. Right. And uh, but and like I said, we had our rye, and when we couldn't get rye, we went back to wheat, and we were trying for about forty, forty-five pounds to the acre, which seemed to work pretty good. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, then we ended up buying a crop roller, a crimper, not knowing what we what was going to happen this spring because some of that wheat got pretty big yeah. and it got wet and we didn't get it killed. So, so did you go in and roll it? Yeah. Yep, you... we rolled it. We planted it and rolled it and uh, found out. And like I say, it was our conditions were pretty wet, so we probably should have waited a few days to roll it. But mm-hmm. we didn't know what was happening in the weather, and we didn't want to take a chance. All right. So, uh, before you got a roller, how were you killing the cover crop? Roundup. Right. Uh, have you tried uh, planting green? We planted about everything in the green as all the soybeans went in. We were planting in wheat that was 30 inches tall. Uh-huh, wow. Because we didn't get it killed, so we didn't have any choice. So did it work out? Or did you roll yeah. that after planting? Yeah. or? Uh... Yeah, we okay. rolled it after planting, and uh, there was a few sleepless nights, but it worked out. Yeah. So, you know, not knowing... You know, first time with a crop roller and uh, and that stuff. You know, just before we got ready to go out and plant, we we started getting rain here, and then sure. so that held us up. And and I was afraid to burn it off when it was that it would lay down. Then we couldn't get in and plant it, so we mm-hmm. just left it go. I've had a couple other farmers tell me kind of a story like you had that they were planting something like cereal rye, or they may may have had a tank mix or anything. Anyway, they get down to the end, and they're short of seed for the last 40 acres. And so they go up and see what they got sitting around and mix it all together. And the guy says, got it turned out great. The problem is I don't quite know what I had. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's. We had that happen to us. So yeah. I mean, we had some two-year-old wheat that we put on for cover, and then, like I say, we looked at it and said, "Yeah, this isn't going to make it. We're going to burn it off." Well, then it started raining. Mm-hmm. We ended up harvesting it. You know, no fertilizer on it. We'd went out and actually put 2,4-D on it and dimetric, and we're planting, unplanted it to corn, left it go. And it still made over 60 bushel the acre, even after I strip tilled it. Wow, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, despite, with no fertilizer. Right, despite so, all, despite, despite doing it wrong, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, you know, I said, so, you know, if we'd have tried to done that, it'd have made about 15. So yeah, so your cover, your cover crops have been pretty much cereal rye, but are you using, or you've been looking at some tank mixes of different uh, things? Yeah, right now for the corn, we're using uh, oats and barley. And I know Joe Nestor had done some work and, and up in his area, and they were using barley. I found some guys south and east of us, about 50 mile, and they're down in there in some rolling ground. And they've, they've been using that in the last four or five years. And they've, they've come out with some real good corn yield sure so uh we went down and met with them uh see what they were doing and uh brought their recipe back and we tried that and it looks good we've got some of it strip tilled we've got some that uh we left alone we're just going to plant into it and see what happens sure but 
You mentioned yields. What would be your typical corn and bean yield? Well, this year we're probably going to make 200 average, maybe a little better on the mm-hmm. corn. Uh, our beans uh, probably, I think, are going to be like 60. Well, that's great. And as late as they were out. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I've, good Lord took care of us. What do you see as the value of your cover crops? Oh, the soil health, for one thing. I just finished strip tilling last Saturday and where we had tried some of the, the barley and oats, and we had put that on wheat stubble. And at, at the time, I, I, we had some water hemp was coming in and mare's tail mm-hmm. and water hemp was moving into our area. So we went in and I took Roundup and, and 2,4-D and burned it off, and, and then it got wet. Mm-hmm. But we did get part of it planted to cover and uh and it's holding its moisture so i i was right on the borderline of whether to <laughs> strip it or not but we yeah. figured we were going to have trouble if we didn't yeah. we were going to try some of it so but when i dug into it to check the strips and the fish worms i couldn't believe the, the amount of fish worms that were in there right so and the structure of it looked good and uh so we've got something to try stripped and just plan into it and see what happens. Okay. Yeah. You you mentioned that you've been using the same GPS line since 2006 and you're doing controlled traffic, running tires in the same places. Talk about this a little and tell me how it's worked out for you and what you've done. I think it's been uh, extremely good to us. Uh, you know, we've we've dug some pits, and then some of our lighter colored soils and clay, we have a, a dark streak. I mean, we changed the soil profile 24 to 30 inches deep, uh-huh. right, in that area. The, the bad thing, the worst, I guess you could say, is it's caused some erosion problems. I mean, we're fairly flat. We have some 2%, but... You know, you're running in that same area all the time. So where that sprayer track is, or you know, if you get a, a goose drowner, why that water wants to run down that track, and it is it is causing erosion. So, mm-hmm. but when we saw the structure of the soil after digging the pits, we decided to leave the line alone for now. Sure. Do you plant in this wheel track or not? Everything's set up on on. Uh, all our equipment's 30 foot. So, you know, we'll call that line. The only time we deviate from that is uh, like if we're combining soybeans, we will cut soybeans on an angle. Sure. And uh, a little bit. So, you know, the combine's running on an angle. We have uh, the tractor with the green cart. That's on RTK autopilot. So if we're doing corn, the grain cart runs the same tracks as the combine did. So, okay. so why do you like combining beans on a little angle? A lot of times they'll feed in better. And the other thing is with the uh, autopilot, the RTK, uh, it wears the knife bar even on the header because you're not always running in the, in the same spot on the header and all. Sure, sure. 
So when cool. I called you this morning and you were going to get parts for a pump for a levee because you were afraid it might flood your cover crops, tell me about what's going on there. Oh, this drainage we have here probably 40 years ago now, uh, we started building these levees. Uh-huh. Uh, we have this drainage that goes to Lake Erie. South of us, our one ditch runs probably, I think it's close to 15 miles south of us. Okay. So what would happen is they would get a rain up there. We wouldn't get it. It would come down here while we're in a low area and um, to the west of us. And that ditch, it's rock, more rock area. So, you know, you can't can't get rid of the water. So what it would do is it would come in and it would flood our fields for two or three days. And then it'd go down and be gone, but it had killed the crop. So uh-huh. we started building these levees and then we pumped the pit into the drainage ditch. Okay. And uh, So you're uh, pretty talented. You're pretty engineered. You dreamed up some new ideas. And I know one of the diversifications that you and Jan have is you, and you were a tool and die maker, right? Yeah. Tell me about the tool and die business that you run. They threw me out of there, Frank. They liked it <laughs> if I went over to the, <laughs> just go back to your shop and leave us alone. So, oh, all right. No, um, it, we do a lot of, uh, we work with uh, Pepperidge Farms. Sure. Uh, we do a lot of their maintenance repair, stuff like that. But we've built dyes and fixtures. We worked with the automotive, uh, the glass industry. We we do uh, the tooling to bend side windows and cars and trucks. And mm-hmm. we've done that for a number of years. But you know, it's all changed. And all the guys I worked with either died or retired. So all right. the younger generations there, and with all the the new equipment, everything CNC computer controlled. I mean. They can do some amazing things. Yeah. So. Well, I, I grew up in auto country. Our farm was 40 miles north of Detroit and 10 miles north of Pontiac, where GMA, GM was the main player. And of my graduating class, there were about 50 boys in it and 50 girls. And a few of us went off to college, and all the other boys went to work on the assembly line for either GM truck or Pontiac motor in those days. And most of them retired from that. It was good to them. But our farm was uh, 200 acres, and it's all houses now. But uh, it was neat growing up. So I'm going to wind this up pretty soon. But you, you've been to the National No Tillage Conference a lot of times, and you've already mentioned and here's some things you got out of it. So you try to make that every year? I don't think I've missed a year in 24 or 25 years. All right. Uh, I said, you know, there's a lot of information there and just, you know, makes you think outside of the box and, and go home and sort out, you know, right. what will work for us in our area. I mean, you know, every area is different. We had a gentleman from up up in the thumb of Michigan go to the first National No Tillage Conference in Indianapolis in 1993, and he had never planted a single acre of no-till. So he went home, and he called me up the 1st of February, and he said, I'm going 100% no-till, and I'm selling all my machinery. Man, I, I'm the kind of guy who would try and talk him out of that. <laughs> but he, he did it, and he made it work. But uh, 
over the years, I've had four or five calls about somebody who would never know tilled and they're going whole hog on a thousand acres or 1200. I try to talk them into giving it a try, but I think I can think of three of them who did that, who made it really successful and would never look back. Yeah, I think, you know, this, the no tilling and uh, the, just the soil. I mean, I helped the neighbor last weekend. Uh, he was drip tilling and, you know, there was rain coming Saturday sure. night. And uh, I had done some on a field, oh, a half a mile from him. And I got done and I went over to help him. And I noticed, uh, you know, you could just tell it in the tractor. and It, it up the horsepower requirement, 2 or 3%. I think eventually we'll get it right if I live long enough. <laughs> right. Have you got <laughs> been trying that for sixty years? Yeah. Who's the next generation coming? Well, my boy Ben, he wants to farm, and and uh, so we're working him into it. And but he's been in the machine shop, so right. he gets along with the computers a whole lot better than I do. Amen. Right. I know. I know the yeah. feeling. So. Hey, this has been great. I think we can end this up. Okay, well, thank you. You know, Frank, I don't like to do this kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, you did well. It was you that called. I told Barb, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I kind of, I kind of figured you couldn't tell me no, or I wouldn't, I wouldn't take no for an <laughs> Oh <answer>. yeah. <laughs> uh, you guys have been a great influence on our farm uh-huh. and our farming oh, operation. And he said, we've come home, we've sorted out some things that would work for us. Like I say, it's a leap of faith, but other people have done it. And we want to leave this, I want to leave this a little bit better than I found it. Right, so exactly, right. I've been very fortunate. My dad put me on a tractor when I was six years old. I'm still running around on some of that same ground. So right, not right. many people can say that. That's right. So. Right. All right. Well, good All right. talking to you. Okay. Take Thank care. You. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. Since Jerry Idle has been doing strip-till, we're going to talk about a reader question that came in about what's going to happen to strip-till acres in the future. Well, it's difficult to predict what the anticipated increase in strip-till acres will be since neither the government or anyone else collects data indicating how many acres are farmed with this system today. Back in 2007, we estimated there were 3.6 million acres of strip-tilled ground, but it's grown dramatically since that time. I'll put on my crystal ball hat and make a guess that by the year 2030, we will have 10 million acres of strip-tilled ground in the U.S. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Jerry Idle for today's discussion. And thanks to our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. 
for Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.